at a real moment in history, a great man once said, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Did not include that because it's Independence Day, I promise. At another real moment in history, a great woman said, the 14th Amendment settled the question forever that all persons born in the United States are citizens of the United States. The only question now left to settle is, are women persons? Susan B. Anthony, defending her right to vote. Another real moment in history. For man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life, and yet we still believe, as our forefathers did, that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. This is why, my fellow Americans, we ask not what our country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. One more moment in real history, a great man once said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And at a real moment, a great man said, good morning, welcome to Mission Church. My name is Justin Crow. I'm just kidding. Um, that, <laughs> that did happen. I don't know about the great part. But... There are many quotes, and I promise, now that I'm reading them out loud and I just did the Independence Day thing, I realize how much that looks like I did that just because it's Independence Day, and I promise I really didn't. However, what I do think we see reflected in all four of those quotes is that everyone sees something is broken. Everyone. Everyone sees something is wrong. Everyone wants to fix it. I, I shouldn't say everyone. Many a vast majority of people that see things broken truly want to fix it. They simply don't know how. And what I think we are seeing is a reflection of the fact that at another real moment in history, the greatest man to ever live said that the greatest commandment we have is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We see Jesus here. Give us the game plan. We just collectively have all, every one of us, failed to carry that out correctly. And what we see in the cries of, of some saying we need to do better and the cries of some who are suffering because we're not doing better is this, this cry of all men are created equal. This cry of we've got to do better. Are women persons? I, I, I have a dream that my four little children will grow up one day where we love God and love neighbor. If he had said that, it would have made perfect sense in that sentence. Is my belief those first four quotes, whether purposely or not, are all outpourings of trying to get more people to live out this last quote of love God and love others. You see, none of those were from church material. None of those were pastors. And yet they are reflecting the same thought, the same cry. And it is with that in mind, that we are going to this next four weeks. We always take a break in July from our current sermon series to do a separate kind of standalone four-week deal. And we're starting that today. And you can see on the screen it is entitled With How Loving Jesus Requires Us to Love Others. Now, if you're thinking right now, good, he's going to give me some practical handles that I can just go do these things. I, I don't have that. I'm sorry. Uh, we, we, 
we want to do those things, whatever you're thinking of, but this is how we can empower you, how you can empower us as a church to go about doing this, to go about loving God first and loving our neighbor. During these four weeks, we'll explore this idea from four different perspectives. We will look at it as separate in separate scriptures as Jesus pours this out, as he lives this out. And you even see in Luke, he says it in a way that is one sentence. So this is called the greatest commandment, singular. Love God, love others. It goes hand in hand. It doesn't separate them. It doesn't say you can love God, and if you want to, you love people as well. No, it is one singular commandment, a both and, not an either or. So think of the text we just read, where Jesus answers what is the greatest commandment as the series text. So every week we will explore that text, but our sermon text will be a little bit different each week. It will look at this from different perspectives as we do life with, that's today, as next week as we walk with our neighbors, third week as we bear with our neighbors, and the fourth week as we suffer with our neighbors. So that's where we're going. So before I read today's text, though, I want you to do me a favor. Now, pastors are notorious for doing this. They say, I want you to close your eyes, which is dangerous already, but we're not too far in, so you shouldn't be that sleepy yet. But they say, close your eyes, and I want you to imagine something. And then they just move right on. Okay? They don't even let you have time to like even imagine anything. I'm not going to do that today. We're going to have an awkward moment of silence here. So if you think it's going to be awkward, keep your eyes closed, like I tell you. Okay? Boom. But I want you to really imagine when I say love your neighbor, I want you to close your eyes and for 10 seconds imagine what does that look like. I want you to think who is there? What are we doing? Who, where are we? Who's talking to who? Who's doing what? Okay. So for 10 seconds or so, close your eyes and truly imagine vividly what that looks like because I want you to call it back to memory later. All right. Hopefully you imagined something and you didn't just make your grocery list, but I have no bearing on that. I can't tell what you did. So Matthew 9, 10 through 12. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. We're also going to turn to Luke later. If you want to go ahead and have your finger there. Matthew 9, 10 through 12. It says, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So what do we see here? We, we see life. It's just regular, everyday life. They're just eating. They're hanging out. It says Jesus was reclining at the table. Now that's how they ate back then. We don't have time to go into all those details. But he was just sitting there. Relaxing, not working, reclining, not preaching, eating, not busying himself with the work. He was relaxing, a, a thing I love to eat, and it recharges my batteries. This is what Jesus was doing. Jesus was eating, hanging out with people, just 
chilling if you're my age. I don't know what you millennials say. But then we see the elites of the society judging him for it. We see Jesus looked down upon for who he was eating with. All of, all of our mamas told us, the company you keep, right? Everybody, the company you keep, that's who you're going to be. That's what you're going to be like. You want to see a picture of yourself in 10 years? You look around at your friends. That's what I was always told. This is what they're saying to Jesus. And this was never truer than in ancient Jerusalem. If you didn't offer something back to society, then there was no reason for the ones who ran society to hang out with you, to be around you, to do anything for you. It was a very give and take. If you have something to offer me, then maybe I'll offer it to you. But I'm not going to stoop down to your level to eat with you, to hang out with you, to do anything for you. I'm not even going to associate with you. Now, this is still true today. It's just a, there's a lot more gray area as to who's into what category nowadays, but very much still active in today's time. But where do we find Jesus, the king of the universe, time after time after time after time? With exactly those people. And most of the time, only with those people. He is constantly with lepers he is constantly with the unclean, the poor, the women, the kids, the fishermen, the Samaritans, which we'll look at in a little bit, sinners, prostitutes. Never do we see him recoil from that. Never do we see him hesitate from going headlong into those situations. Never once do we see him call someone common. He doesn't devalue those. The society is already devalued. He values them and corrects people who are not also valuing them. These were His people. These are today His people. And praise God that it is true. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6, after a laundry list of sins that will not inherit the kingdom of God, what does He say? And such were some of you. And I can look at that list and go, yep, I was not, not some of me. All of me was a lot of that list. Thank God that he does not look at us and go, that's too dirty for me. That's too messy for me. That's too unclean for me. I can't do that. He steps into our mess. We are God's people. We are the dirty, the common, the devalued. And God saw fit to dwell with us, to eat with us, to save those the world never would have. He chose what was foolish in the world to claim the wise. He chose what was weak to shame the strong. He chose what was despised and lowly in the world to build his kingdom. So this is what we see Jesus continually do. And my question is, why are we so hesitant to do it ourselves? Why do we so often don't do this or unwilling to do this or at best reluctantly do it because we feel guilty if we don't? We are far too many times as Christians closer to the Pharisees asking, like, why are you reaching out to, to those people when you've got these people? Why are you befriending these people instead of these people? We see Jesus simply doing life with these people, eating, reclining at the table, nothing formal, nothing fancy. And that is what I want to contend to you. We don't have to come up with a formal, fancy way to love our neighbors. It's just doing life. We do life with them. I am convinced this is how revival starts. We've been praying and asking you to pray for revival to happen starting in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and we pray that God will somehow use Mission Church in the process of revival happening. I am convinced that revival happens when Christians begin taking this greatest commandment seriously and living it out. I am convinced 
that revival will happen when gospel-centered people begin living truly gospel-centered lives amongst non-gospel-centered people living their non-gospel-centered lives. See, living gospel-centered lives will lead us to doing life with, walking with, bearing with, and suffering with those who are not living the gospel in the hopes that because of our continued living the gospel, they will then continue, begin to live the gospel. I hope that made sense. It really did in my head, I promise. Okay. The reason I believe this will lead to revival, though, is because truly living out the greatest, greatest commandment will cause us, will lead us into living out the Great Commission. The Great Commission only flows from this greatest commandment. If loving our neighbor does not naturally lead to evangelism, we are not loving them as we should be. We're loving them some. We are not loving them to the uttermost. If it does not lead to evangelism, we don't make evangelism a box to check. Well, I did that. Shared the gospel today. I hope my pastors are proud. Shared the gospel today. I hope Jesus is impressed. And here's where I want to be careful, okay? Because it's always a dangerous thing to say things that could, and you know ahead of time, could come across a different way. I want to be careful that I don't sound like I'm saying something that I'm not. We love preaching, proclaiming the Great Commission. Go make disciples. Go convert people. Go talk to them about Jesus. Go share the gospel. And please hear me. That is all right and good. We should do that. I think that's even the sermon text for next week. However, if not rightly preached and proclaimed, we can make evangelism seem like an ulterior motive instead of an ultimate goal. And here's what I mean by that. When sharing the gospel is an ulterior motive, we only enter into the relationship with this covert mission. It's, we're, we're bait and switch. I'm your friend if you come to Jesus, but if you make it clear you're not going to come to Jesus, eh, I don't know. I'm going to have to cut that off. I'm going to have to change things up. Evangelism has to become a way of life. It is not an event. It is a lifestyle. We must love our neighbor and in the process of loving our neighbor because notice it does not say, Jesus did not say, love God, love your neighbor, and try to convert them. That's kind of implied. Yes, if you are a Christian, that's what you should be doing anyway. But loving your neighbor is an end in itself. That is what we are called to do. Evangelism has to become a way of life or we will never naturally share the gospel with anyone. It will always be a duty, a chore, an obligation, and it should be a desire, a joy, and an outpouring of love of God. It should come naturally to us. Grandparents, this is the age-old example, but grandparents don't have to be told to talk about their grandkids. And really, parents don't have to be told to talk about their kids. I talk about my kids all the time. You know why? Because I already love them. It's just natural for me to talk about them. If I say I love Jesus, but I never talk about him, when evangelism becomes a way of life and not an event, we are ripe for revival. When evangelism becomes the natural overflow of love for neighbor, we are ripe for kingdom growth. When it is not, though, it's like we're concealing the gospel, waiting for the time to drop the evangelism bomb on them. They become projects. These people in Matthew were not Jesus' projects. They were his friends. He loved them. He cared for them. He was doing life with them. Every, every time I ask Trevor Ayers if he's doing lunch today, he's like, I eat lunch every day. Let's go. Every time. 
Everyone eats. Jesus knows this. That's why you see him eating all the time. That's why you see him eating with these people. It's just regular life. People are people, not projects. Not, look, 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 look what a, <laughs> never mind, I'm not even going to bring it up. Social media is the devil. You should all get off of it. And when we treat people as projects, we are not treating them with the dignity deserving, as the dignity deserving image bearers of God that they are. That is what we are missing when they're simply our projects, or simply our, look at me, look what I'm doing, I'm loving my neighbor. Look, don't you see, don't you see that I'm loving my neighbor? I'm loving my neighbor because I love my neighbor, not because you're giving me the adulation that I really, really want. I love my neighbor because I love my neighbor. That should be true. Unfortunately, it's too many times it's not because they've become a project. The command to love our neighbor does not come with qualifications or contingencies. We love them because we have been loved. We do life with them because Jesus saw fit to do life with us. God sent Jesus to live in our neighborhood. You understand? He did not have to do that. He did not have to lower himself to, to live with us, to eat with us, to dwell with us. We love our neighbors especially when they don't deserve it, because that is how Christ loved us. That is how He paid the price for us when we did not deserve it, and no one likes to be someone's project. You do that, you run the risk of instead of winning them to the gospel, turning them completely away from the gospel. So what do we do? Because I can tell you what I... <laughs> When I told you I didn't want to sound like I was saying something that I'm not, I can assure you, you will never hear me, and I'm going to speak for the other pastors of this church, you will never hear me say, just live out the gospel. You don't have to say anything. Just live it out. Be a gospel-centered person. Live like, like God would have you to live, and people will just automatically be won over to Jesus. I am not saying that. That is wrong, and that is unbiblical. And it doesn't work. That's the bigger thing. The gospel is meant to be proclaimed from our lips. And then people can look at the lives we've been living up to that point and go, he must really believe that. She must really believe that. Because I saw her live it out. Not, well, they're living differently. It must be because of Jesus. We don't love our neighbors simply to convert them. We love them because we are converted. You see the difference there. So if we claim to be followers of Jesus, we will love our neighbors when we do so with no expectations. We do so whether they ever look like they're going to be one to Jesus or not. Many of you all know that our next door neighbor for the past seven years, almost seven years, are staunch, devout Muslims. They love Allah. They go pray. Like They're not these cultural, because cultural Christianity and cultural Islam, they both exist. They are not culturally that. They do all the things. They're the best neighbors we're ever going to have. <laughs> they give us food all the time. They knock on our door the other day and handed us a box of Twix the size of that speaker. Like it, I don't know why they thought, oh, these fat Americans, they'll probably eat all the chocolate we give them. So here they are. Uh, like Literally, I have no idea. They knocked on the door, handed us the little youngest girl, said, these are for you, and ran off. That was it. Like That was the whole interaction. And we're still eating them, and that was a week ago. And I've given so much away, but whatever. They're always giving us food. Nora and Mervis spend the night with each other. They love playing together. I've shared the gospel with the father. I don't speak to the wife because I want to respect their culture. I say hi, and that's it. I've shared the gospel with Zufar a bunch of times. He has shown 
no interest other than to refute what I'm saying. Nope, that, nope, 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 every time. But the Bible tells me to love my neighbor, so I do. I go to his house when I can, because he's a truck driver, he's not always home. When I see him, I go over, I bring the kids over, let them hug their neck. I send the kids, sometimes I send the kids over, it looks like I'm, go see Zufar, I want you to, it's really, I just, go get you away from me. But I know they'll take them, so we send them over there. But I really do love his kids. I really do love his family. I really sat in his garage for an hour one day after his father had died with a hundred Muslim people that did not speak English at all. One of the more awkward hours of my life. But I wanted to be present. He didn't even notice I was there. But whatever. But here's the thing. As much as we love them, they are actually probably better neighbors to us than we are to them. So if this lifestyle evangelism is what we're going to bank on, it's more likely I become Islamic then he becomes Christian. Because they are awesome neighbors. They follow the Quran to the letter as best I can. You know the reason they bring us food all the time? It's because in the Quran it says if you're cooking food and your neighbor can smell it, then you have to offer it to them. And they, every time, if he grills out, I'm getting fed. And it is so good. But if lifestyle evangelism is what wins people, then... It's more likely for me to be one over there than he. It, but my ulterior motive with him, I would say when it started, was conversion. What a great story that would be. Pastor moves in, talks to him about Jesus. The Muslim people become Christians. Lifetime Hallmark movie right there. Boom. But now, I just love them. They're just good people. We love them to death. But when the gospel becomes the ulterior motive, what happens if he does get converted? I stop loving him because my goal is met. Done. See y'all. Great. Thank you. You see, this doing life with is the first step in the process. That's why this is a four-week sermon series. My motive needs to be to love him for God's glory, to show others how God loved us first. Jesus makes it clear to show God's glory in real time. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is how it is done. Full stop. And in the process, as you go, this is the Great Commission, and as you are going, share the gospel. You do this as you are going. You see, let's say they did convert. Muslims become Christians. God would be so glorified in that. Let's say I truly love them because God has commanded me to love them, and they never convert. God is also glorified in that. And that's what we're shooting for. God's glory. Now, I want to make sure I say this. I am not sharing that story because the crows got it all together. They're loving their neighbor so well. And I'll explain why in a moment, why this is not an example of what I'm talking about. Read the series text again. It tells us to love our neighbor. No caveats, no qualifications, no ifs, ands, buts, untils, unless. But notice what else it doesn't say. Notice he doesn't say, act like you love your neighbor. Just pretend. Fake it till you make it. No. Love your neighbor. Truly love them. It doesn't say anything about liking them, does it? That's something you can't really control. But you love them. You sacrifice for them. You care for them. It, so that leads us to a very valid question. Well, then who are you talking about? Who's our neighbor? Are you talking about our next door neighbors? Are you talking about our neighbors as in our neighborhood? Because some people live in big neighborhoods. It's a lot of people. 
And here's where most pastors just say, everybody's your neighbor. It seems like a good, just cover all your bases. That way no question is left unanswered. Everyone is your neighbor. And that's not untrue, okay? I'm not, I'm not disparaging that. It's not untrue that everyone should be your neighbor. But Jesus tells a parable to illustrate this point. This is where I told you we're going to turn to Luke. Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at a couple of very specific parts of this story. Many of you, if you've been in church at all, you've probably heard the story of the Good Samaritan. But Jesus is answering this exact question from a lawyer. Whom he, Jesus just asked this lawyer, you tell me what, the, what it says. You tell me what the greatest commandment is. And the lawyer rightly answers, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's right. That's exactly right. And then the lawyer, seeking to justify himself, that is a key phrase in that story, he's trying to find a loophole, says, well, who's my neighbor? Because I, I want to know who i got to love and who I don't have to love here. And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. In short, guys traveling down a road alone, this road is notorious for danger. This road is notorious for violence. He's traveling down the road alone. He gets beat up and robbed, left for dead. Good news. Great news, actually. A priest rolls by. Holy man. Surely he will stop. He switches sides of the road, keeps it, keeps it moving. Good news, though. A Levite, the holiest of the holies, that he comes by. Surely he will stop. Switches sides of the road, goes down the road. Thirdly, a Samaritan. This is bad news. And if you don't know culture, Jewish people, Samaritan people, hate each other. Passionately hate each other. The Samaritan comes. I don't know. It doesn't tell us what the Jewish man was thinking, but he was probably like, well, if those two guys didn't stop, this guy definitely won't. And yet, we all know what happened. The Samaritan is the one that stopped. The Samaritan is the one who sacrifices to help him. He spends his time with him, cleaning him up. He spends his money on him, putting him up in a hotel or whatever they were called back then. He spends his money to help this man. But here's where I think we find our answer for who is our neighbor in today's time. You know, again, many people say everyone's our neighbor, but it, there's no way to love everyone in this way. So it gives people a cop-out. Because what do they say? Well, I can't love everyone, so I just basically won't love anyone. But here, what does it say? The, the Samaritan, in verse 33, as he journeyed. Now, he may have made this journey a thousand times in his life. He may have made this journey never in his life. This may have been his first time on that road. It does not matter. As he went along, God placed this man in his sphere of influence. The Samaritan acted upon it. He not only acted upon it once, but what did he do? He promised to circle back and check on him again. And if there was more money owed, he'd pay that as well. See, this man offered nothing in return to the Samaritan other than trouble. He had made a poor choice traveling alone. It was going to be costly, and there's no record of him saying thank you. Now, he probably did, fine, but there's no record of it. So who is our neighbor? It is those we are in contact with as we journey. Now, you may be thinking, well, that sounds easy enough. I'm already loving the neighbors that are around me in my neighborhood. And that is actually true of so many of you. If we get another Nugget Drive person in here, we're going to have to call this a cult instead of a church because it's like that whole street is showing up to church every week now. And that's awesome. So some people are going to be like, I'm already loving my neighbor. Look, all my neighbors are here. 
And to that, I would, I would applaud and keep doing that. Please, if you're doing that in your neighborhood, please keep doing that. But another way to look at this is instead of as we journey, is someone in our paths. And if that's the case, then we as Mission Church need to be willing to change our paths. We need to be willing to be found on the road where people routinely get robbed and left for dead. We need to be found in places maybe our moms would have told us, that's not your side of town, hun. Stay away from that side of town. That's across the tracks. Don't go there. We need to find ourselves doing life with people we would never do life with if it were not for our love for Jesus. Because that is what Jesus did. He hung out with those he was nothing like. He continually made sure his path would cross the undesirables. There's a story in John chapter 4 of Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. In that story, it says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jewish people never had to go through Samaria. They'd skip over it. They'd go around it. They'd do something. It was never a have to go to Samaria. But Jesus had to go there to cross paths with this woman in order to show her the love that no one else was going to show her. The other women of that village avoided her like the plague. That's why she was out in the middle of the day. That's why Jesus knew she'd be out in the middle of the day. That's why Jesus had to go that way. And what happened? He talked to her. She went back and talked to the village. Everyone got converted. It wasn't Jesus' motive to simply convert them. He didn't even go talk to those people. He sent her in there to talk to those people. Now think about this, Miss Church. We have been a homeless nomadic church for eight years. I want to say publicly from this stage, thank you all for sticking with us. I know it was difficult. I know it was not always pleasant. I know all of those things. Thank you, truly, thank you from the bottom of my heart. But we have been nomadic for that long. What did we pray for for eight years? Y'all can say it out loud. It was a building. Building. We need a building. We want a building. It's not God. It's not our idol. But we need a home. Every family needs a home. We said that over and over and over and over again. And what did God do? And where is it? Here. In this neighborhood. Full of the very people we see Jesus eating with in Matthew. We must be willing to change our idea of what neighbor means to fit the neighborhood in which God has planted us. I'm not saying you have to move your biological family here. I'm also not not saying that. Maybe you should move down here. But our family is here right now. So look out the windows. I know you can't right now. As you leave, as you drive home, doesn't matter which route you take. Other, I would suggest everybody that, in, unless it just makes the most, like you're going to burn a whole tank of gas extra, and even then, leave this way today. Drive through town a little bit. Don't take veterans. There's not too many people out there. Drive through town. Just do me a favor. I hope there's a traffic jam at this end of the parking lot today. Just drive that way. Go home that way. And just open your eyes. And just look around and see how many Matthew chapter 9 people you see. Because I want to ask you a question. Go back to that vivid picture of loving your neighbor. What did that look like? I want you to really, really think about it. Really consider what that picture in your mind looked like. How many of the people in the picture had a different skin color than you? 
How many were from a different country? How many had a language barrier from you? How many of them had face tattoos? How many of them were high in the moment of loving your neighbor? Not at some point in their life. That time, right then. How many of them were, were at some point or right then addicted to something? How many of them were prostitutes? Homeless, poor. How many of them had stolen from you before in the past? Whether that be time, whether that be money, whether that be both. How many of them had lied to you? These are our neighbors. Our neighbors here at Mission Church. And this is why I wasn't bragging about loving Zufar. You know why? Because it's really easy to love Zufar. He's a great dude. He loves me in return. Maybe better than I love him. He's a middle class, well-to-do. He's got good kids who respect us. He's got good kids that love our kids along with it. It does not take what it took for the Samaritan to love the beaten man on the side of the road to love Zufar. He's just a good guy. I even like Zufar. But I want you to ask yourself what you really thought, really felt as I read that list of people. As you really thought about someone with a face full of tattoos walking in this church, what you would think, what you would feel. Because see, in that same verse where it says, as he journeyed, it says, as he journeyed, he had compassion. And this is it. This is what it takes to love our neighbors. Compassion involves allowing ourselves to be moved by the suffering and experiencing the motivation to help alleviate and prevent it. So as we see someone suffer, whether it's their fault or not, because as you drive home today, if you take the route I asked you to take, you're going to see a lot of people that are suffering life circumstances because of the choices they made. Nobody did anything wrong to them. No one forced them into that lifestyle. They just made choices and that's where they were. That's where they ended up. That, is, that was a natural consequence for the choices they made. Some of them, that's not the case. Some of them are being forced, all that. It doesn't matter. Love is costly, as we will see in the weeks to come. It takes our time, our talent, and our treasure. Compassion is the only way we are going to be willing to pay that price. If we look at them and judge them, we're going to be like the people in Matthew chapter 8. Why are you, why are you even trying, Jesus? Why are you with these people, Jesus? But if we look at them and start asking different questions, I wonder what lifestyle caused him to make those decisions. I wonder what his childhood was like. I wonder what she experienced from her dad or from her uncles or from the people that supposedly loved her in the past that made her choose the lifestyle she's in now. And compassionately try to hear the answer. Compassionately try to listen to these people. Compassion is what compelled God himself to do what he did through the cross. Psalm 78, 37 and 38. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. That's us. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. And he did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all of his wrath. We see Jesus have compassion numerous times toward those who were less than in Scripture. Talking to people that no one would ever talk to. 
We see this as the reason the father in the parable of the prodigal son, if you don't know that story, we don't have time, but Luke 15, look it up and read it. But it says, when he saw his son from afar off, he felt compassion for him and ran to him. That person had stolen from him, wished him for dead, and spent all of his money. And yet, compassion compelled him to run to him. Colossians 3.12 commands us to do the same. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, if you're a Christian in this room, that's you, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We must begin asking God to change our hearts to hearts that have compassion for our neighbors. We must ask God to give us the willingness to pay the cost that will inevitably come from loving our neighbors. And we must ask God to make us more like Jesus so that we will begin to see ways in which to do that. Remember at the beginning of the sermon I said, I'm not going to give you practical. Do this. Just go out here. Do this. People will be one to Jesus. But I can assure you doing something is better than doing nothing. Compassion leads to love. Love leads to truth. Truth leads to evangelism. Evangelism leads to revival. You see, as Jesus was eating and reclining, he naturally told them they were sick. You didn't catch that at the end, right? You just, oh, he's eating with these people he shouldn't have been eating. And what does he say? The sick people need a physician. And it was implied, that's why I'm here with these sick people. He was unwilling to see them remain in their plight and in their sin. And the only way to do that is through the gospel. The only way to do that is through gospel restoration. He truly loved them enough to tell them the truth. May we love God so much that we love our neighbor that way. Enough to tell them the truth about Jesus. But if they reject that message, let's love them anyway. Love your neighbor so much you cannot bear the thought of them not joining you in the joy that is loving God through Christ. And evangelism will naturally come out of loving our neighbor. And we will see in the weeks to come as we continue to walk with them as we bear with them as they are going to make really dumb decisions and bad mistakes, and as we suffer with them willingly stepping into their suffering, not being at arm's reach, we will see that as we pay this price, hopefully with compassion, and hopefully God will use that for revival. Let's pray.